Welcome to Interfaith Encounters. I'm Dr. Robert Hunt, and in this series we are discussing religious freedom. Our guest today is Dr. Steve Long, University Professor of Ethics of the McGuire Center for Ethics at Southern Methodist University. Dr. Long, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. I appreciate the invitation. So I'll get to my first question, Dr. Long. What is the importance of religious freedom in contemporary society? Very good. I would begin with the prayer of confession in my own Methodist church, which says, free us for joyful obedience. Free us for joyful obedience. Freedom then is positive. It's freedom for something. It's freedom to worship God and to follow God as God uh, has called you to do. It's not the negative freedom that you find in much of the modern era, either the freedom of non-interference or the freedom of non-domination. Those accounts of freedom are negative accounts of freedom. You're free if nothing interferes with your will, but it's a positive account of freedom. You're free not because you have choices, but because your will and your intellect are ordered toward the good is, that is God. And in that sense, I would say that religious freedom is not given to you by any government. It's not given to you by the state. It's present simply via being a creature of God. Uh, and, it, um, and, and there's no way it can be taken away. It can't be taken away because no one can keep you from truly worshiping and following God. Even if they uh, put you in prison, we all know that many of the martyrs, even of the church, uh, did not have their religious freedom taken away because they could be faithful even in the context of martyrdom. Uh, the role then for me of, of, of government would be to recognize this freedom, not to assume that it provides a freedom. And it's important that people of faith uh, affirm that it's more basic than the freedoms that are enjoyed by being members of a certain nation or state. So it's, really a freedom. so it's a freedom that is granted or even mandated by God. I would say, yes, I think so. And it's a creaturely freedom. It's a freedom that's intrinsic to your being as a creature of a, of a God who creates out of God's abundance. That's a very useful distinction. So my next question is, why is this freedom important in our society today? Um, I think for a number of reasons. For one, what it provides is a complex political space. And by a complex political space, I mean that there, there can be a tendency in modern states to be homogenizing, to think that they're, they are alone the ones who give us our freedom. And to recognize that you have a source of freedom outside of this, outside of even what the state concedes. And mind you, I think the state should... Uh, uh, concede and grant this freedom, to acknowledge that you have a freedom outside of it actually limits the power of the state over your life in productive and good ways. And I think that's important. That's why I said there's no way this freedom can be taken away, even if it's not conceded, even if the state or whoever, whatever the government authorities are refuse to acknowledge it, it can't be taken away and you can still affirm it. Uh, here I stand, I can do no other. Right. So can you give me an example of how that might work out in a, in a real-world situation where 
you would, um, in a sense, be standing up to the state because of your claim of religious freedom? Right. Um, you know, what comes to mind is, is uh, a Franz Jagerstadter's life. And uh, there's a wonderful movie made about his life right now, this Austrian Catholic farmer who all he wanted to do was farm and, and uh, be part of his family. He went to church and paid attention. And more than anybody else, he recognized right away who Hitler was. So he refused to participate in Hitler's war, in his military. And he got in trouble for this. He was in jail. His lawyer came to him and said, okay, if you could just take the oath of loyalty, we just need for you to take the oath of loyalty. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, I, I can't do that. He said, but you'll go free if you just sign this paper. It's only words. He said, not to me. So, you know, now he was killed, mind you. Um, now that to me is a sign of someone who has truly been free. And I think there are ways this happens in, in all kinds of societies. Um, I see it with um, uh, uh, people who out of just war concerns say they won't participate in a war. And, or even the, among the Mennonite communities, people who take the Sermon on the Mount in a certain way and say they won't uh, participate in war. I do think it's a good government, a good government that acknowledges that freedom. I think it's tyrannical governments which refuse, or it, perhaps not even tyrannical, perhaps a better word would be governments that have an inflated sense of themselves. And that often happens, that they refuse to acknowledge those freedoms. Now, mind you, and, and this is why religious freedom is an issue, there are all kinds of, of gray areas here, aren't there? Yeah. Uh, and that's why this is so contested at the present moment. Uh, and I worry about, I worry about some of the ways in which religious freedom gets displayed in our contemporary culture. Yeah. Well, and that, that leads to a question that um, comes up in other of the interviews that I've done, which is what happens when my assertion of religious freedom isn't just an assertion over against the state, but is an assertion in the public space that ends up appearing to suppress the rights of others. Yeah, yeah, isn't that the issue? Um, that my religious freedom can be a freedom to discriminate. Yeah. And there's, yeah. a, there's a proper sense of discrimination. Moral judgments are discriminations. But there are also a common public ideals that sometimes emerge, um, like, like say, ones I would affirm, like the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And uh, as I'm sure you're aware, one of the things that makes this whole discussion uh, thorny is that the, there's been some pretty good historical evidence that the rise of the religious right and its an, an emphasis on religious freedom grew out of the Green versus Connolly uh, decision in the 1971 uh, civil right, uh, 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 Supreme Court case, which I think did use religious freedom as a way to discriminate. Because what that said is that uh, universities that would not allow interracial dating couldn't receive public funds because they violated the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and you know, we've been fighting that issue. It's religious freedom in America. You can't discuss it if you don't discuss what happened in 1964. Uh, because that continues to repeat itself and you have to ask yourself, is this a legitimate example of religious freedom? Or is this, or is this the idea that somehow that, that, you know, 
it, it's a different account of freedom. It's, it's that negative freedom of non-interference. You know, nobody gets to tell us how we're going to uh, regulate our colleges and universities. So, you know, and I don't mean to commit what's called the genetic fallacy, as if all concerns for religious freedom have now been tainted because of what happened in that uh, 1971 Supreme Court case. Um, but I would say some of the Christians were on the wrong side of that. And uh, we have to acknowledge it, that, uh, uh, that, that we were wrong. Uh, that was not religious freedom. That was the freedom to discriminate and maintain an unjust political system. So that gets us to a really tricky question then, because you, we talk about legitimate and illegitimate religious freedom, which gets us to the question of what is religion? What's a legitimate religion as opposed to just uh, the religious justification for my bigotry? Right. And of course, uh, that's complicated in U.S. law because um, there's not a clear definition. I mean, that you have to treat people's religious convictions with a certain neutrality. Uh, this is what was big in the Master Cake of, of, of Baker's uh, uh, Supreme Court decision. The argument was that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission did not treat his, his religious convictions with neutrality. And the reason was because the Civil Rights Commission uh, said that the freedom of religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust. That was the statement that was offending, offensive. Not, not offensive, but that was the statement that was used by the Supreme Court to say his neutrality was violated. It's actually a true statement. I mean, anybody who studied history know that's a true statement. Uh, uh, so uh, it's not about the truth or falsity of religion. We don't, we don't, the United States in its legal system doesn't decide that. It just decides, was your, were your religious convictions treated with neutrality? But that only, but, but I mean, that only restates your questions. Well, whose religious convictions? You know, um, are, are, are the religious convictions of those who would refuse to marry gay and lesbians? Um, are those religious convictions to be honored? I think that right now, you know, no, no church is forced to marry gay and lesbian persons. Um, uh, so, so, the, so in the, in the positive sense of discrimination, churches are allowed to make those discriminations, just like no church is required to ordain women. No church is required to ordain married people. Um, those things are pretty much uh, left up to the, uh, the, the role of the church. And I think they should be. I mean, I really think they should be. Um, on, on, the, on the other hand, the idea that, that somehow, and this is what I worry about the discussion of religious freedom in the current context, a lot of the debates that are, we're having in the Supreme Court and elsewhere in the judicial, uh, in, the, in the legal system, really aren't between a kind of secular atheism and a religiosity. And sometimes they get depicted that way. Say discussions of gay marriage. Everybody, every church, nearly every church is having that debate within itself. And my fear is there are those who would actually use the power of the state to impose convictions on their co-religionists that they disagree with. So these are not, these are not faith versus secular debates. These are debates internal to churches. 
And I really worry what happens when we invoke the state, the judicial system, um, or, or even for that matter, uh, try to garner enough votes to impose some of these theological convictions on our, our co-religionists. One of the trying things about this is, of course, not within the churches, but when an individual says in the public space, maybe I'm a public servant, or I just run a business, I should be able to express my religious convictions in the way I manage my business. Um, because now I'm not, this is not an internal debate within my church. This is a debate between me and the society at large about whether my religious convictions are legitimate and should be um, protected. And I don't think you can come up with a general rule or principle that resolves all the difficult cases that that situation generates. Um, so for instance, if someone doesn't want to serve someone because they come in as part of a neo-Nazi rally and they oppose the neo-Nazis. I think that's one issue. If somebody doesn't want to serve someone because they don't believe in divorce and remarriage and they've discovered that they're divorced and remarried, uh, which is you know, clearly against the explicit teaching of Jesus in the gospels, uh, that seems to me to be a different issue. Um, uh, how do you... Uh, what is there a general principle that we can uh, develop to handle all those different all those different cases that arise do no harm i don't know i mean they're going to because what what one person thinks is is harm another person thinks is a benefit um given the, the kind of uh, moral fragmentation and 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 reasonable pluralism uh that we have in our culture so I, I don't know if I can resolve any of those issues per se with a, gen, with a general statement, but I think we have to take them sort of one at a time. One, you know, like the master cake uh, bake, uh, uh, the master cake bake shop. You know, that was, that was a specific issue. There's a lot of sides to it. Um, and I do think we have to have a kind of practical rationality that looks at each one of these and also asks about what are the implications if we do this, what are the implications for this? I think this is really interesting. I want to kind of bring things to a close. First, to come back to a statement you made very early on, which is, this is an area in which religious freedom, in the positive sense, creates a complicated social space. But complicated social spaces are, by definition, complicated. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say that we're uh, pointing slightly forward to the fact that um, we'll have a speaker uh, later on in the series, uh, Marcy Hamilton, who's written specifically about uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Acts and the, the role of making law versus the role of letting judgments being made case by case in a court that can take into account the individual things. So that's something to look forward to. Dr. Long, thank you very much for being part of the discussion. I look forward to uh, putting it up. I'll let you know when the date is. Ah, thanks so much. Thanks, uh, Robert. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for, again for inviting me. This has been an episode of Interfaith Encounters, Consequential Conversations with Leaders of Different Faith Traditions. I'm Robert Hunt, inviting you to join us for new episodes each Tuesday.